Real variety for your work day. This is season three of the Fat Doctor podcast and I'm your host, Dr. Asha Lamy. We're going to be talking all things related to weight stigma, fat phobia and fat activism over the next few weeks and months. I'll be joined by a host of regular guests as well as some experts across the fat activism sphere. So all you need to do now is sit down, relax and listen in. Welcome back to episode two. Today, I have got another very good friend with me. Welcome back to the show, Rachel, um, or Rach, as I know you as. You are a child physiotherapist. You are also a larger fat. We were just discussing this. Are you a larger fat or a super fat? I was like, I feel too British to say super fat. It's It sounds too snazzy. <laughs> is a larger stroke super fat and one of my very close friends who I rely on a lot and it's it's wonderful to have you because we're going to be talking about children and you obviously work with children that is your job your day-to-day bread and butter and I think you're going to be brilliant just to add some context and some commentary both from a personal level and from a professional level so um we're carrying on where we left off basically which is at the American Academy Pediatric Guidelines I sort of went right to the end and kind of went in reverse so I looked at the drugs and the surgery last week with Jeanette and this week we're going to have like a more global overview of the guidelines I don't think we'll manage to finish it all today I think there might have to be another episode believe it or not but I really do think it's important to get to grips with these guidelines as they're coming out so that we can see this is not unusual this happens all the time different guidelines similar standards similar types of practice so I'm going to start off with the introduction brace yourself Rach it's really patronizing as shit here we go I am braced so you have in your hands or at your fingertips the first edition of the American Academy of Pediatrics clinical practice guidelines for evaluation and management of children and adolescents with overweight and obesity with with overweight over that the latent (laughs) angry grammar controller and he's like with overweight (laughs) this is this is what's happening now it's uh, you know it's um is it it first person language yes it's first person you know it's with obesity is what it is i'm allowed to swear aren't i oh we we start swearing (laughs) right from the beginning right from the very beginning (laughs) that's how this is gonna go so the work is a true testament to their passion and dedication to combating childhood and adolescent overweight and obesity the subcommittee responsible for developing this guidelines compromise a diverse group of professionals from a variety of disciplines representing both governmental entities and private institutions the entire guidance committee were people who work in the weight loss industry whether mm-hmm. that's oh so diverse <laughs> so diverse oh, they were also so varied <laughs> they were also pretty much all thin pretty much all white pretty much all wealthy uh you know they, they were they were as the lack of diversity was quite obvious you shock me you shock me ash you didn't i'm shocked <laughs> no i didn't um so and i love the representing both governmental entities and private institutions yeah that mm. doesn't that doesn't um doesn't do it for me no. yeah <laughs> not happy about that so we no. this is like the first two sentences we're already like oh christ that's yes. not good yes. experts all they are united by a common desire to provide the finest, most effective care and treatment to children and adolescents. With I'm going to stop saying with overweight. It's just because yeah. it's, it's like every second sentence. And indeed, it's a pathologizing word. Very pathologizing. So, over the course of several months, the members of the subcommittee reviewed the technical report. So, remember that it starts with a technical report and produced from the study review, then worked in concert to develop the key action statements and expert consensus recommendations contained within this guideline. So, what happens is you start off with um, a huge review, like a meta analysis, if you want, or they just take all the, uh, the studies they can find, all the ones that are included, meet the inclusion criteria, you know don't meet the exclusion criteria will then get looked at in great detail from start to finish and they'll uh, produce a big report and then based on that report the guidelines committee will get together 
and they will make some key action statements. So those are their actual recommendations. And then the expert consensus recommendations are basically, well, we didn't actually ask these questions in the report, so we can't make a key action statement, but we've all agreed that this is pretty good, so we'll recommend it anyway. So yeah. those are the two different ones. So blah, 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 blah. While representing such a broad spectrum of perspectives, the members of this committee are all keenly aware, keenly aware of the multitude of barriers to treatment that patients and their families face. These barriers impact not only their access to treatment, but their ability to follow prescribed treatment plans. Whereas some patients are able to adopt their lifestyle changes and habitualize elements of the prescribed treatment plans, so many others struggle to do so for a wide variety of reasons. Hmm, I wonder what they might of the be. century. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, it gets worse. The members of the subcommittee understand all of this. To assist with optimising health equity and overcoming these barriers, guidance on a number of multi-level factors related to barriers to treatment have been included in this guideline. They haven't, but they said that they did. Um, I mean, they've mentioned them, but they've just... Like that's you know. worse than yeah. just glazing over it completely. It's that token nod, which I feel like a lot of society is currently at. Mm. It's like, we're not going to deny that some things exist but we're just going to do a little little e-learning module on it or <laughs> we'll just we'll just do a little token nod in the writing and we won't actually right. meaningfully with context and nuance address these and also address that like that what was that line that you just said then about something like the committee members fully understand this and have created I might, I might be getting this wrong here, but get, you know, we created comprehensive, multifaceted guidance. Like I, I already know, and I've not read this front to back, that you fucking haven't. <laughs> and part of that is because you're all from a very homogenous group of people. Mm. Like, stop claiming what's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've interrupted, but no. I'm already cross. Yes, and you <laughs> should be, because there is a sort of like, well, you know, racism is a problem absolutely and you're like okay what are you going to do about let's tackle racism let's tackle poverty and I'm like yay thumbs up well done Mm. um so here's another bit during the course of their work members of the subcommittee acknowledged that although so much has been learned to advance the treatment of children and adolescents nothing has been learned there is still so much we have yet to discover there's a lot to discover and like partly you know (laughs) that it doesn't work Um, they're not wrong (laughs) that's not a lie it's just it's an understatement yeah um so they recognize the importance that future studies will play in advancing knowledge and understanding of this chronic disease knowledge and understanding that will lead to future research are included in the guidelines and that's a nod to the fact that we haven't got that many studies about drugs and surgery yet but don't worry yeah yeah that's what that nod is is how 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 much further can we like there's they've so deliberately used the term chronic disease Mm. there because what do we associate with all of the well-known chronic disease processes is you know when it's non-curative it is symptom management Mm -hmm. which is quite often not just lifestyle changes and or behaviors but medication or Mm -hmm. surgical input or you know some some kind of way of medicalizing it which is you know wholly appropriate for some chronic disease processes but I just yeah it's it's very it's very deliberate language isn't it You're, you're so right you're on the money there as to why they've been like We've got more. It's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is essentially what they're saying. Absolutely. And there's a nod to it throughout. The, you'll see, like, throughout the guidance. Oh, that's right. There's a, you know, but there's scope for more. Like, younger. More, more. <laughs> just more, 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 more. More drugs. Yeah, more drugs. <laughs> um, so it is the fervent hope of every member of the subcommittee that this guidelines and the resources that accompany it will provide you with a more complete understanding of the issues, factors, and needs of patients combating the O word, as well as successful treatment options to assist them in their battle. It's a battle. It's a war. I can't bear this kind of language in in regards to any health related, Mm. physical health related or mental health or whatever condition. Mm. Battle, Mm. war, Mm. fight. We've got a task force, a task force, you know, don't be ridiculous paramilitary exactly (laughs) I mean they literally they use this kind of stigmatizing language all the time don't they throughout yeah we're battling these children's yes 
yeah and I don't think they realize how much well this is me guessing obviously this is not bounded in evidence itself but personally I can't help but feel that a lot of these researchers and people that write these kind of things have been heavily influenced by this language that's been co-opted in the media mm-hmm. and now they use it almost without realizing it do you know mm-hmm. what I mean it's just yeah. so, it's just become the norm hasn't it and it's like where does this come from absolutely it has become the norm and it has become the norm for you know it's been 30 years since this war on the o word started you know the war itself i mean we've not been at war as a country as a nation or as nations for 30 years you know to my knowledge you know but but it's a 30-year war so far and how's it going by the way peeps how's the war going (laughs) are we are we thinner or fatter um so this is the oh this is the cheesy bit that ends it this guideline and the resources that accompany it are not only for you, they are because of you and all that you do to care for each and every patient as if they were the most important one, because as we all know, they are. That's from Doug Lunsford, family representative. Doug is a lay person. He um, describes us. I watched a video with him in it from 2016. Um, he was a teacher for 20 years, worked with children with special needs, had a son who was battling obesity all of his life. It's, it's the thing, isn't it? You've been battling it all your life. God. Is there any point in time that you just go, do you know what? Let's just stop battling. You know, the war is over. What happens if we give in just stop. and move our focus elsewhere? Yeah. What would happen? That's, I think we've just said one of the most radical things in the world. There. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think completely and utterly. Um, might as well just shove love down their throats <laughs> too much doing the same thing just direct it into their veins <laughs> sorry it's been a long day <laughs> I know and this actually you know as someone who is literally dealing with pediatric I mean I mean you work in pediatrics that is your job you only ever work in pediatrics so Indeedy. how how do you think this this last sentence that, you know, how you care for each patient as if they're the most important one and all that stuff, how do you think fat children actually feel? You know, what's their experience of healthcare? Well, I mean, I, I certainly cannot imagine that these children feel like they're the most important person in the room or in that hospital in a way that is positive to them. Maybe the most important problem to deal with right now is definitely probably how they feel. Yeah, I just, it's so hard because that's so cheesy, that line. But, you know, for the most part, that is kind of like the ethos in general, not talking about the one, the O word here. But, you know, treating children and young people, that is the whole point, the whole push um, within certainly, you know, public healthcare within this country is to be, wholly patient-centered and I suppose we tweak it ever so slightly maybe in pediatrics because we say patient and family-centered because it's um you know you can't divorce the two as perhaps as easy as you can with someone who is an adult and has their own you know full autonomy and consent yeah it's almost I just it just makes me feel really really grim inside because it's just twisting it on its head and like just knowing what I know purely from a personal experience as someone who is fat and moves through the world as a fat person and has experienced luckily never any major need from healthcare, but, you know, just general, you know, surface level healthcare as a fat person, when everything has that taint of your body and your weight, you just don't feel like it's fully individualized healthcare and children are not dumb they they can pick these things up and it's just you know like the the very place that I work um has a entire team I'm not going to use the term task force because that's fucking ridiculous but there is an entire team it's not called weight management Uh, it's called um the team around complications of excess weight that's what they went for or Q for short and I just, yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? Because I, 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 it makes me feel really funny inside knowing that that happens in the same place that I work and that, you know, there's children a couple of floors above me come into clinic appointments where even if they're being assisted with things holistically, 
that's the guise is that they're being given holistic advice to improve their overall health and well-being from the complications of excess weight. It's just so sad that everything has to resolve, resolve around their king weight. You know, a lot of these children have very genuine need for holistic input potentially to improve aspects of their life and their health and well-being but I just it makes me really sad that it's because they are visibly fat that is why they have ended up here whether or not that is because their parent and or caregiver has taken umbrage with how their child looks and has therefore sought health care purely on the basis of their child's you know visible body mass or it might be the opposite and that actually they've almost been cajoled into this clinic by health providers around them because their child may have a few different sort of diagnoses that rightly or wrongly well we know wrongly is being completely blamed on a weight related thing when it bugs me because they have a huge MDT around these children I just always think isn't that enough of a, a consideration that it's it's not just their fucking weight mm. you know if you what if you know they've come to you and one of the issues that they're having perhaps is um let's just pick one of the very no, well-known issues that people relate to weight and they or they have some issues with insulin resistance and they have some symptoms due to their insulin resistance and they get dietetic input they get a consultant a medical consultant input they'll get specialist nurse input they'll get physiotherapy input and it just bugs me because I'm a little bit like if that I don't actually know this because I I don't know the the service well enough but if that child or young person if their health markers aside from their weight improve by following advice being given by this team does that mean that they've still failed if they haven't lost weight in, in, in the eyes of this department, even though perhaps their blood sugars have improved and their activity levels have gone up and they have a healthier relationship to food and more routine and, and boundaries around their day to day life and they have a better relationship with their parents at home and things a little bit more cordial and their mental health seems to be better. The, the, the very name of the clinic and the MDC and the team suggests that that would not be enough. For that young person and sorry I've waffled ages there but to me that's really demonstrable as to say they're the most important person in the room they aren't their their weight is their BMI their body mass their their physical looks are the most important thing in the room and I just think that's so so sad to do to anyone but to do to children and, and teenagers is just oh, yeah it makes me feel very grim It is pretty grim. And I think what's going to be really interesting now is looking through the evidence, we can see just how little evidence there is for all of the things that we're doing. So a few explanations I have to make. First of all, people might know this, people might not know this, and I wanted to make it as as accessible for everyone. So when you're making guidelines, when you're creating guidelines, the first thing you do, as I said, was to do this big literature review and and a report is written. And you have to grade the evidence, right? So there, there are two ways that we grade it. The first is the quality of the evidence. And there's four levels. There's level A, which is kind of generally is just interventional study. So um, when you've got two groups of people and you kind of follow them and you compare them as opposed to observational studies, is which when you kind of either look backwards or look forwards, but you're not actually intervening in any way. So level A is an interventional study. It's well designed. It's conducted well. Um, maybe it's a meta-analysis or something that's really good quality evidence, the kind of gold standard of studies. That's level a and and if you've got some good level a evidence you can make a pretty strong recommendation level b is when you have studies with some minor uh, kind of limitations but generally you've got some consistent findings you've got more than a couple of studies you've got quite a few and they all kind of agree with each other um and if that's the case then you're at level b and you would call that kind of a moderate recommendation Level C is when you've even got you've either got a single study or a few studies, but not enough, or that you've got a few studies, but they have inconsistent findings, or they've got major limitations. So that's that's those poor quality studies. Um, level D is when you don't even have any decent studies; it's just like expert opinions and case reports. So we we wouldn't count those. That's a level D. So C and D, you can really only give a weak recommendation because it's low quality evidence, and really we know all our recommendations should be evidence based. So that's the first thing, and then the second thing. that you want to be looking at is is you know you're looking at the benefit and the harm and you're asking well are they balanced so are the benefit and the harm balanced in which case 
we're not going to make any decent recommendations because if there's the same amount of benefit and harm, then why make a recommendation on anything? They're going to have to kind of guess, which is not particularly helpful. So that's a very weak recommendation. If there's a massive difference between the benefit and the harm, in other words, there's lots of benefit and very little harm, or there's lots of harm and very little benefit, then you can make a much stronger recommendation. So we're looking at two different things, and that's how we grade our evidence. And that's really important for later. So remember this, folks, you know, level A, really good quality you're not going to find any of that or very little of that in this this these guidelines at all level b is pretty good level c weak level d don't even think about it and then it's looking at the the benefits and the harms now <laughs> before we get any further there's a real big problem with that because if you look at the inclusion criteria for the initial literature review the primary aim of the studies had to be examination of an obesity prevention or treatment. So you weren't looking at anything else surrounding being fat. You were only looking at either prevention or treatment. So that's quite specific. And the primary outcome had to be obesity, broadly defined, and not an obesity comorbidity. So they weren't looking at health they were not interested in A1C levels or, you know, blood pressure or any of those things. They included them, like they included those details in the study, but that is not the outcome of the study. The outcomes of the study was purely weight. In other words, weight loss, right? So they're only interested in studies that look at prevention or treatment, and they're only interested in studies that look at weight loss. What that means is that they are not interested in health. They're only interested in size, and they have not included any of the research on how these interventions cause weight cycling or weight stigma or any other health conditions. They are not interested in any of the databases apart from primary care and pediatrics. They weren't interested in any psychological studies. They weren't interested in any eating disorder studies. They did not include anybody from the eating disorder, health at every size community. They did not include any professional that actually um, advocated for fat children. They were only interested in weight loss. So we can't compare benefit and harm because they did not look for harm. So as far as I'm concerned, every single one of these recommendations should be discarded because they haven't looked at the harm. And if you, you know, when I'm giving my patients advice, I have to tell them, the first and foremost, what are the benefits? What are the risks? What are the long-term implications? What are the side effects? I cannot just say these are the benefits and we won't remember any of the other stuff. We'll just forget all the other stuff. It's not ethical. It's not medicine. It's not anything that I've ever heard of. So we need to remember that, that we can only grade the evidence based on the quality, but we can't grade the evidence based on harm. So let's look at some of the recommendations. I think there are 14 or 13. I've only picked out four or five. <laughs> so many, as I said. But this is the first one, Rach. Number one, in fact, paediatricians and other primary health care physicians should measure height and weight, calculate BMI, and assess BMI percentile using age and sex-specific CDC growth charts or growth charts for children with severe obesity, at least annually for all children 2 to 18 years of age to screen for overweight or obesity. So that's a very long way of saying that basically all paediatricians and all primary health care practitioners, so all GPs, and doesn't have to be, um, sorry, it's primary health care providers. So it can be nurses, physios, anyone, any job that works with children from the age age of two until the age of 18 every year should be screening them by measuring a minimum their, yeah at a minimum from by measuring their height and weight and calculating their bmi now just a little bit of information before i turn over to you i looked in the guidance to see what they said about bmi because we all know that bmi is useless so i wanted to understand how they could defend the use of such an inaccurate measurement um and so what did they say the first thing they said it was easy to use and inexpensive um, they agreed it wasn't the gold standard. The gold standard is, you know, X-ray photon absorb. You know, I can't remember absorption. It's something that we never do because we can't. We don't have access to this equipment. So <laughs> it's easy to use and inexpensive. It's apparently a validated proxy measure. What that means is it's not actually measuring fatness but it's kind of correlated with fatness and it's correlated enough that we will accept it. It's validated. We've used it before. It's been used frequently already. So since it's being used all the time, why not keep using it? It says 
For most individuals, BMI is generally well correlated to adiposity, in other words, to fatness for most individuals. But then it goes straight on to admit, as we all know, BMI has limitations, however, including high specificity, but low sensitivity for detecting excess adiposity. Sensitivity means how sensitive is it? If it's very, very high sensitivity, then almost every case you pick up on is going to be fat. So if it's low sensitivity, you're going to pick up on a whole bunch of people, but mo- you know, but some of them or a, a reasonable amount of them aren't actually going to be carrying that much excess weight. Now, in most cases, if you've got a test that's low sensitivity, the next thing to do is to go on to the next test. So this is like a screening test. And then we go on to the actual test that sort of gold standard test. But as I said, um, X-ray photon abs, I've never heard of it and I've never been able to request it. So I imagine this is only in tertiary care centres in highly specialised areas. You're not going to be able to find that in the vast majority of GP practices or paediatricians offices. So it's not, it's limited, very much limited. It often detects, calls people fat when they're not. It does not directly measure body composition and fat content and may under or over detect, and especially over detect excess adiposity in certain racial and ethnic groups. Finally, children and adolescents who have a high fat free mass often in certain racial and ethnic groups, may have a high BMI and, as a result, be incorrectly classified as having overweight or obesity. So they defend it by saying it's easy and inexpensive and everyone's using it, so we might as well carry on using it. But they admit that it actually is fairly inaccurate or not accurate enough, certainly, um, that it's racist and that there are certain people and certain groups of individuals who are going to be incorrectly classified and medicalized and pathologized for their whole entire life when they shouldn't be. So how do we feel about this? (laughs) The bar is so low. Right? Pros. Fuck it. It's easy. We already have it. Cons. Let's be overtly racist and also have something that means nothing, (laughs) especially in a cohort of patients who are continually growing and changing. Like they didn't even touch on that in their fucking limitations. That really irritates me that they've not even bothered to nod to the fact that everything that they have just listed whether they see it as a bloody benefit or a limitation, they're talking about the BMI generally. And quite often when we use the term generally for these sorts of screening tools or whatever, if they're not a pediatric specific screening tool, generally actually means within an adult population. Mm. So they don't say that, but they don't often identify those limiting factors for a body that's totally, it changes bloody week on week, never mind year on year. And oh yeah, I've got other things to say, but go on, what were you gonna say? <laughs> no, well, I was gonna say they sort of do allude to it because they talk about the BMI growth charts. Now, back when I was studying, you didn't use BMI, you used the growth charts. And then they've now got BMI growth yeah, charts. They've amalgamated they... them, haven't they? Exactly. Now, this is from the the American ones, the ones that the Academy are basing it on, the AAP, is the CDC's 2000 growth charts. Looking at the growth charts, they're based on data from the 1960s through to the early 1990s. Okay, and they're age and sex specific, but they actually didn't start looking at race properly until kind of the mid to late 90s. So all non-white groups are underrepresented, underrepresented in the in the growth charts. And what's really fascinating is, and I learned this today, until about eight months from birth to eight months you have a massive rapid increase in bmi which one would expect and then it begins to decrease the bmi itself begins to decrease kids are getting longer but not getting fatter until approximately the age of six and then from about six it it rebounds or increases once again and that's because it's called the adiposity rebound it's believed to be the age when um body fatness begins to increase after reaching a minimum and everybody has to do this it's normal if you don't do this there's something seriously wrong you're Um, prepping for puberty essentially you're prepping for puberty (laughs) your body they found out that children and this is just an observation they don't know why we just know we can observe that children who start that adiposity rebound earlier in life are more likely to have um, higher levels of adiposity 
in adolescence and early adulthood. So children who start maybe earlier, so six years is the, is the average, then you know, maybe start at five, um, are going to end up being heavier. Now, they didn't allude to why that was the case, but it does explain why we're focused on six, the age of six, and we'll come to that in a minute. So we know that BMI is not particularly useful. As you said, we, we're not really referencing the fact that they're not that they're, that they're growing and we're supposed to use BMI standard deviation scores and we talked about this last week and the BMI SDS but quite often these studies will just focus on weight or BMI and as you said that's not helpful yep. these children are meant to grow it's a pretty integral part of pediatrics as well is the fact that our patients are not static unlike really the majority of adult patients until you know the end of a disease process, end of life, or perhaps into frailty, you know, in much older age. So to not, it's just, I find it mind boggling that they've not made that one of their primary (laughs) focuses Mm. in the Mm. discussion around this first recommendation. Do you think we should be weighing children from the age of two until the age of 18? Every year, at least once a year? Not unless it's indicated. And it's, from my opinion from my experience of working in pediatrics as a health professional it's indicated for children and young people who require um specific dosages of medication very very important then and again even more pertinent perhaps than in an adult cohort because yes weight fluctuations are very normal throughout life but obviously we know or we hope <laughs> that the weight is going to fluctuate more significantly in a child as an upward trend or children who, for me, were more focused on children in my field who are failing to thrive and are mm. underweight and we're very concerned about that fact. That's when weight is pertinent for us. Mm. Other than that, I just I cannot, yeah, there's just not a world where I think it's useful. I just, I, to take it back to that frigging cheesy line at the end of the introduction, how is this important? How is this putting the child or young person first, really? Like, what, what does it actually mean and do? Your bloody benefits for your first point all resolve around convenience for you mm. as a practitioner. Mm. None of those benefits were aimed at the patient group that you are recommending for. Not one. So, yeah, I think I feel like that speaks for itself, personally. I noticed that prior to these guidelines, we the American Academy of Pediatrics were recommending, based on previous kind of evidence, were recommending screening children aged six years or older. It's now gone down to two. So it, it's it's very much, I mean, yeah. two, two, I'm trying to think of my children when they were two. There is no reflection um, on what they look like now. And I, I had children who were failing to thrive. Literally one of them was under the care of a pediatrician because they were failing to thrive in the first year. I mean, he's six foot two now and he's nothing <laughs> that happened then has anything to do with what happened now. Of course, underweight no. is very different because it can reflect something serious going on. It, it's so dangerous, isn't it? It's so dangerous because we're going to go down this route, as wow. you said, where we start pathologizing them um, based on some arbitrary number that we already know is completely and utterly inaccurate. And then what yeah. do we do with it? I'm not gonna... I'm causing a lot of panic with, with parents as well. Just sorry to interrupt, but like mm-hmm. we're talking about the child and understandably how that's going to have a massive impact on them. But, you know, like I said at the start, you can't divorce patient and family so much in paediatrics. And like, imagine, you know, I'm not a parent myself, but I'll just give you an extra thing to stress about (laughs) on top of all the litany of other things that come with parenthood. Mm. And it's not something that you've just read on some random mummy blog or whatever. It's coming from the bloody association of pediatrics. Like what? You know, I don't know. And I think it can become an obsession for parents, right? I mean, if they're being told your child's going to die if you don't do something about this, you know, because people can, can obviously over exaggerate the the risks. And I'm, I'm going to, talk more about risks I think in the next one but you know it it can become the main focus and everything else pales into comparison which is terrible because again this is not individualized care this is focusing on size not health and it's going to give ammunition to people who care like parents and carers who you know it's not that they don't love and care Mm. for their child but they perhaps you know have 
through society's fat phobic, weight stigmatizing, anti-fat bias based world, you're giving extra ammunition to people who perhaps hold particularly toxic beliefs around that anyway, to then turn onto a child who does not have the autonomy and the ability to withhold consent from being in the firing line for mm. that you know like I think that's really understated again within we're, we're, we're at point one and I'm already like they're not talking about these things enough but like <laughs> I, I just think you know children adolescents they can't choose to divorce themselves from that direct line of fire for to use a warlike phrase there whereas at least as an as an adult who is you know if you are an adult who are is non-vulnerable in terms of you don't rely on others to care for you you have you you retain some autonomy to move yourself away from it to some degree and this entire patient cohort does not even have that small degree to do Mm. so Mm. you know they they have no power and I think again that's something to really focus on when it comes to pathologizing these children and young people in that way and 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 pushing this on them because they don't have that power at all they really don't they're so vulnerable and, due and to o- that. often their parents are also vulnerable because don't forget yes you know parental fatness um is you know is I, I wouldn't say a risk factor because risk factor implies that it's it's a condition but it, it certainly predicts to some degree because mm. it's genetic we know this so a lot mm. of these parents are going to have a lot of internalized fat phobia they're yes. going to have been you know this is a this is something they're familiar with this is a this is a cycle it's become a cycle now hasn't yes. it because they were pathologized when they were children exactly their parents were on their grandparents and so it's just a never-ending cycle so parents will be easily co-opted by pediatricians and other healthcare professionals because you know they don't know any better that's all they've been told their whole lives as well and exactly we'll go on to the next one we've moved on to nine so we went from <laughs> one to nine so we skipped a few but we'll come back to them next week and um, it says pediatric <laughs> pediatricians and other uh, primary healthcare professionals and I, I want to I want to draw attention to the fact that it's pediatricians and primary health care professionals, because GPs and other primary health care professionals will have absolutely no time to look at these guidelines. They will not have been doing any critical review of the no. literature. They do not know anything. They see a, a graphic, uh, a, an executive statement. They'll just look at the, the top part, right, the first sheet that says these are the takeaway points and done so they will not have been interested in the nuance and that's it's not it's not in the sort of executive statement they don't talk about the nuance they only talk about it in the big report which is 100 pages so of course they're not going to read it so this is really important it's not just pediatricians it's not specialists it is actually anyone should treat overweights and obesity using a family-centered and non-stigmatizing approach that acknowledges obesity's biologic, social and structural drivers. So non-stigmatizing, but we'll use the overweight and obesity. Now, let me just give you an example. Um, So they talk about the longitudinal, in other words, long-term care because this is a chronic disease so it's all about shared decision making with patient and family culturally competent care treatment coordinated in the medical home transition planning into adult services now come on this all sounds wonderful but it doesn't happen in real life cultural competency requires professionals to understand the different cultures that exist and to not have any of their own racial or other types of bias, you know, shared decision-making with patients and family. You've got 10 minutes to talk to a patient. You're going to sit them down and do shared decision-making. Let's be real. And then they talk about structural and contextual factors that impede and influence health and treatment. And this is where it's all here. Access to care, weight bias and stigma obesogenic environments I bloody hate that word obesogenic Esogenic. It, but that, what it should say is social determinants of health adverse mm. childhood experiences racism health inequalities do you know what they didn't mention at all in this 100 page document they did not at any point in time say hey we should be screening for sexual abuse here hey we should be screening for physical abuse here we should be screening for other harm here because a six-year-old that has perhaps suddenly gained weight it might just be yes. natural but it could well reflect some trauma yeah. going in in the home. Are we screening for sexual abuse? It's one in six children are being sexually abused. At any point in time, did anyone think to put into the guidance, at this point in time, you should screen for sexual abuse? Because yeah. that would be very e- Either at this rate of weight gain or mm-hmm. if you notice weight gain 
plus these other factors to contextualize mm-hmm. so that no because the thing is what you're saying is so valid but then you again you don't want people to flip and be like that kid's fat so there must be something really wrong with them yeah. it's such a fine line to mm. to to try and balance isn't it when it, everything around fatness is so negative you know mm. and it's you you know you you try and we're, we're talking as as two health professionals here about a very important nuance to you know physical changes in the body and that it is really important to 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 acknowledge that and that it's under acknowledged but even so I'm immediately jumping in and thinking absolutely but at the same time we're going to have to be you know you you still have to make sure that that level of context is there otherwise it's going to be another stick to beat fat kids and families with it's so upsetting isn't it that you can't even speak freely like that without thinking oh but hang on how might this be construed as a further negative pathologizing point against this population when yeah it's just variety in it but we do I mean you're absolutely right I take your point and you're so right and it would be used in a negative way but adverse childhood experiences have definitely got a link to weight gain and they definitely and so what I'm saying is this is a pediatric population they are actually having their that adverse childhood experiences as we speak as an adult Mm -hmm. you can you can help people come to terms with what happened to them as a child potentially you can prevent them from happening yeah you can stop it happening (laughs) right and and so it's it's just that it wasn't talked about that's the thing that bothered me they mentioned it they nodded nodded they've nodded to it again yeah and so many of these things they just they just nod and that's it And, and and like I said before it's almost worse than just ignoring it completely it's so without substance and so it's almost it just reeks of arrogance doesn't it in a way that yeah okay I can get away with just nodding to it and 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 then I'm going to steamroller on because I am so comfortable within my privilege and I know that no one in any of the big shot positions is going to challenge me on that, mm. you know, and, and then therefore I can get, I can do that. And, and, and I can feel good about myself for doing it as well. Mm. I can pat myself on the back and my other colleagues on the back for being so progressive and holistic uh, <laughs> while we continue to perpetuate rampant weight stigma against a large portion of the population right. that were actually great people don't you know absolutely imagine imagine saying we recognize that access to care and health inequalities weight bias weight stigma social determinants of health adverse childhood experiences and racism are all very important but we will not include any studies on this in our report no. No. Just, we'll just ignore it so we know it's no. important but we have no interest in finding out about yeah. it yeah we're not going to explore it <laughs> in the slightest mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna acknowledge that it's an issue and then we're gonna go oh that's the tricky one and that that doesn't fit neatly with our currently held perceptions so <laughs> we'll just pop that as a little denim as in within one point and move mm. on it's in a graphic it's not even a, it's, it's, it's a little picture it's very lovely it's a little arrow a little snazzy mm. picture oh yeah we love a graphic don't we, we? love a graphic we love a um, graphic so number 11 pediatricians and other primary healthcare practitioners should provide or refer children six years and older that's grade b quality evidence so moderate right mm-hmm. moderate recommendation and may provide or refer children two through five years of age that's grade c so they've made a weak recommendation it's interesting isn't it it's a weak recommendation but we'll recommend yeah. it anyway we know yeah that no yeah we'll pop it in we'll pop it in why and, and in no doubt don't Yes, don't recommend. No, nobody's reading the grade C bit. No, that's not no, on any no. of the. Nobody knows it's a grade C. No one said no. actually between two and six, it's grade C, which is weak. So don't bother. They've just heard it and they're now thinking, right, toddler, fat. Yeah, go. fair enough. Yeah, I'll crack on from a younger age. And and then what are they referring them to? Intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment now apparently this form of treatment is more effective with greater contact hours the most effective treatment includes 26 or more hours of face-to-face family-based multi-component treatment over a three to 12 month period now pause for a moment and ask yourself who is providing this intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment that would be the um the weight management people all of whom made the guidance and Hmm. Are they not going to be financially benefiting from 26 or more hours of face-to-face family-based multi-component yeah. treatment over three to months, 12 months? They're literally going to be profiting from this. 
Mm-hmm. Is that not a conflict of interest? Should they not have declared it? And, and this is what they want them to do. They want it to be patient and family in partnership with a multidisciplinary treatment team. So you've already got to employ dietitians and physical yep. therapists, the whole lot. It has to be promptly for child or adolescent. So as quickly as possible when they're two years old. So we can do it from the age of two yeah. until the age of 18. And, and it's then, a chronic disease. So yes. they'll be with us for life. They will. <laughs> um, there'll be lots of health education and skill building on multiple topic topics and behavior modification and counseling. So there we go. We've got some fitness trainers now, yeah. some personal trainers coming in here, dietitians. We've got psychologists. Some psychologists, yeah. Where? In the healthcare sitting. So in a hospital. So, so it's nurses, HCAs. Lots of money to be made. Staff. And if you're in America, you know, you're charging insurance companies for all of this nonsense, mm-hmm. right? And ridiculous amounts of money has to be at least three to 12 months with ideally at least 26 contact hours, even though they're billing by the hour. It should be in a group or as an individual or both, ideally. Um, ideally. <laughs> it needs to be face to face, strongest evidence. Virtual, there's a growing a bit of evidence, but do you know what I mean? How to make money and more money and more money yeah. and more money and more money and more money and even more money. It's all very convenient, isn't it? So convenient. Based on grade B or grade C evidence. It's not even grade A. I mean, that's outrageous to me. If you're going to make such a big statement about children be aged, from the age of two onwards, you better have the bloody yeah. evidence to back it up. None of yeah, it. definitely. Shocking and, stuff. Yeah. It's, now I was just going to say what you said earlier, that the fact that most people who read this will not differentiate the quality of that evidence out probably or they will but they'll think in the context of the whole document it wouldn't have been put in if the experts didn't agree on it so it must be okay do you know what I mean because that's what people will do who they have some understanding as a health professional but they haven't you know had the privilege to study a master's in research or you know they haven't done their degree for 10 plus years so they aren't they have the ability to to read guidelines and to critically analyze, reflect and think about it to a degree, but they're, they're fucking busy, you know, they're still clinicians and they want, they want stuff that's going to tell them what to do. Absolutely. So there's going to be a, a bias towards action because there always is because you want to feel like you're doing things for your patients as well. So if something is telling you, Oh yeah, this is sound, do this, then People are going to be like, excellent, I will do that. This is a real ratified, top-notch, top-of-the-line like set of recommendations. They're not going to have that same critical eye that perhaps, you know, like what, what we're doing right now because they, they don't have the time or inclination or incentive to do so. They have exactly. the opposite. Yes. So we've got the financial incentive to just believe it. And this has got the AAP stamp yeah, seal of approval. It's got all the right seals yeah. and stamps. It's got exactly. all the bells and whistles. So last week we were talking about medication and surgery. So I'm not going to go over it, but I just wanted to talk about the actual recommendations, what they said. So again, paediatricians and other primary healthcare professionals should offer adolescents 12 years and older weight loss pharmacotherapy. So drugs according to medication indications, risks and benefits as an adjunct to health behavior and lifestyle treatment. So as well as health behavior and lifestyle treatment, they called this grade B evidence. We've talked about this evidence. We know how rubbish it is. There was only one study that looked at the sort of weight loss drugs that are actually available and used on a regular basis and will be used on children. That's um, Saxenda at the time. So that study was shit. And we talked about this last week, but they've called that grade B. So, I mean, even that you're like, hmm, that's um, that's not quite what I would call a grade B. It's a reach. <laughs> yes. And then but here's this. Remember I said that there was the um, the action of the action. What does KAS stand for now? I'm going to forget um, key action strategies. But there's also yeah. the consensus recommendations, which are the ones that mm-hmm. actually weren't studied. But there's a general consensus. There's a general be clinical consensus between mm-hmm. experts. It's between the experts. Ste- it's, yeah, it's the step down from we haven't got the empirical evidence of any kind to yeah. say this, yeah. but we have the clinical evidence between colleagues. Mm to say this yes so we can may offer children ages 8 through 11 weight loss pharmacotherapy according to medication indications risk and benefit as an adult to health so basically 8 to 11 now we were there we studied it last week there are no studies on children 8 through 11 that are decent studies anyway um the study for sex ender was 12 years and above so they're basically saying yeah the age of eight I and mean, we don't have any 
evidence. Who cares? Do it anyway. And who's funded this bloody study? Who's who's basically paid off half of these people? Who is funding the American Academy of Pediatrics? Well, we all know it's the actual drug company. So they're making a consensus recommendation based on zero evidence whatsoever, just because they all agree that it might work. Yeah, which is wild, isn't it? It's wild. So then it goes on to surgery number 13. We should offer a referral for adolescents 13 years and older with severe um, O word um, for evaluation for metabolic and bariatric surgery to local or regional comprehensive multidisciplinary pediatric bariatric surgery centres. In other words, we're going to refer to surgery that they admitted was grade C evidence. And we know this because we studied the evidence. The evidence was shocking. They have made, based on weak evidence, they have said mutilate children as young as 30. I was just about to say, as if they're going to they're gonna slap it in a AAP guidance document to refer them for serious consideration of unnecessary amputation of otherwise healthy organ tissue that's going to have lifelong ramifications and potential serious side effects, multitude of which, not just one or two, there's a big old list, there's there's strong evidence for that shit, but we're going to recommend that on some seriously weak evidence. Like, oh man, the, the, the unacknowledged vitriol mm. <laughs> towards fat bodies even in little kids and, mm. and young teens is just it's aggressive isn't it you know it's it's relentless it really is it just it boggles the mind and, and it, it certainly does it just I know none of my colleagues are thinking about this okay I didn't it's not been adopted here and my god I hope it doesn't get adopted in the UK but it doesn't matter my American colleagues are all going to be reading these guidelines and just going right I mean we're used to bariatric surgery pushing bariatric surgery in adults so it's only one mm. step further to push it in children and as he said we know that there are side effects we have zero idea about the long-term complications there are more yeah. things to be concerned about in children because these are growing yes. bodies and malnutrition etc is yes. not going to be helpful for them and we have to remember that a lot of the children who are going to be offered this surgery they'll be paying for it many of them will be paying out of pocket because it won't be covered under their health insurance but the follow-up which has to be lifelong if they don't have that much money or if they have poor insurance coverage or something happens and they lose their insurance coverage they will not get they're not going to access it yeah they will get sick they will not grow properly if they're 13 and they're malnourished they are seriously and i hate to say it but they're seriously fucked they're fucked, mm-hmm. right, Rachel? I mean, can you imagine, as a, as a physio, you know this, right? Yes. The dangers. Yes. The dangers. I know. I just, you know, it's, this is a little bit of a, it's a, it's a reach. It's a, I wouldn't say false comparison, but it's a reach. But I think about within the cohort of children that I work and young people that I work with, because one of my focuses is on complexity. So um, children and young people with complex neurodisability and complex medical needs. Um, and like, the the considerations that we have to go through for these children as to whether or not to give them surgical intervention of any kind whether it be an orthopedic intervention or um you know for their gastro systems or respiratory based and you know just think like I know it's it's different because they are a specialized cohort and they do have more um risk you know because of that but you know we're considering the things that we we know from a quality of life standpoint again it's going to make a difference but even these even in a patient cohort who uh, they do have a limited life expectancy we're still thinking ahead we're still we still think ahead we don't we risk we consider the risk for you know, are they going to make it through the surgery? Have they got, you know, are they robust enough for it? But also, is this actually going to matter for this child or young person in the long run? Is it going to have an, enough of an impact, a positive impact on the quality of their life to do so? And I, I don't know, I just feel like none of that same level of thinking, very different kettle of fish, but, you know, like same kind of overall process, none of that is happening in these recommendations, is it? None of that that forward planning like you like you so rightly said before like we know the side effects and the risks and you know all the horrible things that come with bariatric weight loss surgery in an adult cohort 
to a degree. But at the end of the day, this, this surgery in general is quite a young surgery. And in terms of doing it in a young population, never mind a child population, we have no evidence. You know what I mean? Like the, and yet they're recommending it. And it's like, we don't know what's going to happen to these and are we not learning guys are we not learning that we need to think about long-term bloody consequences for any patient cohort but particularly for one that is not fully fucking developed you know they're still developing and growing in every sense every single part of their body has not reached its optimal prime yeah you know like and it's in an incredibly tumultuous time when it's in the midst of fucking puberty like you can't pick a more riotous time within someone's body as in those teenage years oh yeah just it boggles my mind it truly does we don't actually you know more importantly these guidelines have only ever looked at how these interventions whatever they are surgery medicine whatever impacts their size they have not looked at how it impacts their health of course no study has ever looked at how it impacts their long-term health because we've not been doing it for long enough yeah we can't (laughs) so so that's the thing is you know they're like well we really need to do something about it and you're like okay what's the evidence that you have and I haven't looked at that yet that's going to be next week so we'll talk about that more next week but for the vast majority of these children who are just fat and nothing else they don't have diabetes you know they are they are the the majority are probably only going to be fat and not have other problems as well um a lot of them will go private a lot of them will you know do whatever they have to do to get that surgery because they're being told at the age of 50 they should do it but we don't know if they were ever going to have health problems in the first place because 50 percent of people with a bmi of over 25 are cardiometabolically healthy so you know, we're sitting there saying, well, if you're fat, you're going to get diabetes. No, that's not true. Not all fat people develop diabetes. That's nonsense. And even exactly. if they did, is bariatric surgery going to cure that? Well, I was just it. about to say, <laughs> they're they probably say no. still going to get diabetes anyway, because it's, Absolutely. you know, a, a huge genetic component and chopping off half their freaking stomach from what we've seen long term in adults that have had this surgery. I would like to put a caveat on my limitations of what I'm about to state. It doesn't stop things, doesn't. you know, it has, if anything, it may have a temporary reversal, but then it bounces right back and quite often gets worse. So, and that's in, in patients who are established adults and mm. have begun the de- disease process or were, you know, on the teetering on the edge of the disease process of diabetes, not in an otherwise healthy completely yeah to use the term healthy yes in in the in the way that we're you know we're using the term health here but we are or disease free disease yes we're talking about absence of disease we're Mm -hmm. reflecting primarily on physical um and mental health when we're when we're discussing it in the context of these children you know (laughs) it might it might like you're saying it's going to make them less fat for an indeterminate number of months and or years but past that we can't say anything yes we cannot say anything but what we can say with a you know fair level of certainty is the negative side effects even if even if i could talk to you now ash about just the negative side effects of any teenager going under the knife for anything Mm. you know even if we're taking us taking the the reason for the surgery and what the surgery is away mm-hmm. invasive surgery is always is, dangerous is is always dangerous yeah. always has immediate risks to mm-hmm. life and to mm-hmm. well-being and also will have long-term negative effects even yeah. if it's to fix something you know like i mean one of the literally one of my roles as a respiratory physiotherapist i have to go if a, if a patient has had a certain operation they have to be seen by me due to the risk post-operatively, no matter what that surgery is, if they have had some form of incision upon their body, I need to go and see them and give them preventative measures because they are at risk of lung collapse and or chest infections because they've gone through surgery and had a general anaesthetic. You know, that alone, without any definite benefits other than a change in physical size, why would you choose to put your child, you know, why would you advocate for someone to choose to put their child Mm. through that? 
absolutely that alone is horrible you know it's, yeah. it's no one should need surgery in an ideal world never mind you know no one in general but certainly no child or teenager mm. should need to go through that so absolutely yeah. My husband's always said that, actually. My husband, who is a dentist, has always said you don't go under the knife unless it's absolutely essential. And one could argue that, you know, until recently, bariatric surgery was, you know, more of a cosmetic thing. And it still is. The only thing we know it does, uh, especially in children, is it makes them smaller. It doesn't actually help their health. So um, we're going to have to leave it there, which is really disappointing. But um, because we could talk for, I think, another couple of hours. I'm going to leave you with this. This is the last thing that you see in the guidelines, very much in sort of small print right at the bottom of the executive statement um we don't have to talk about it i think it speaks for itself one of the implementation consensus recommendations now so this is again not based on evidence but we've all agreed that this is very important for the implementation of our recommendations of our of our strategies the subcommittee recommends that the aap and its membership strongly promote supportive payment and public health policies that cover comprehensive obesity prevention evaluation and treatment the first thing they talk about is money and really they should have spoken about that first because then then if they had said it right at the beginning we would have known that money was the thing that they were most preoccupied with because it is it's clear that money is what they're preoccupied with but you know they leave it right to the end into the foot to the small print yeah. oh and please pay us um it disgusts me. Thank you so much for joining me and for offering your amazing insight and understanding, both as an individual who's experienced weight stigma and is literally going through the world as a larger fat stroke. Super fat. <laughs> super fat. <laughs> well, we're going to have to do that forever with like a Superman pose. Yeah. Super fat. Um, but, but also as somebody who is literally dealing with children every day, you've been absolutely wonderful. We'll see you back soon because, like I've told you, you're now you're now regular guest. <laughs> you're regular, whether you like it or not. You I are. love it. <laughs> so that's what I said. Um, thanks for joining me, Rachel. We'll speak to you soon. Been a pleasure, folks. Creating and maintaining a podcast requires long hours and lots of cash to burn. I love this podcast. I love pouring my heart and soul into everything that I do, but it isn't always easy. So if you'd like to support me and the work that I'm doing, I have a Patreon page. All the details are available on my websites and in the show notes. Thank you for listening and I look forward to catching up with you next week.